0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the Rotman Podcast. Today, we have a faculty insights edition of the podcast for you.
1: My name is Dilip Soman, and
0: I am a professor of behavioral science and
1: economics at the
0: Rotman School of Management. As Dilip mentioned, he is a professor of behavioral science and economics. He's the director of the Behavioral Economics in Action Research Center at Rotman, or BEAR for short. He's also an author and has written a book called The Last Bio, which we cover in this interview. And on top of all of that, he has also created a massive open online course on the platform EDX titled BE101x Behavioural Economics in Action that has introduced the concepts of behavioural science to more than 200,000 students from across the world.
2: In this interview, we hear about Dilip's early career and learn about how he got into behavioural science. We also learn about his favourite human behavioural quirks and some of the things that he's changed his mind about in the last year. We hope you get as much from this interview as we did. So without further ado, please enjoy this behaviorally informed conversation with Dilip Soman.
0: Hello, hello and welcome to the Rockman Podcast. You are listening to your host, Joseph Smith, and Reedy Sharma.
2: Hello, everyone.
0: And we are here today with Dilip Soman. Hello, Dilip. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for being here. Pleasure. I'm really excited for this one. Now, Dilip, my first introduction to you came during the Rotman Committed Students Weekend, which used to be known back then as the Rotman Problem Solving Challenge Weekend. You even gave us all a copy of your book, The Last Mile, which I devoured. I really did enjoy that, although we weren't allowed to read it right at the start because uh, it might give us some tips on the problem-solving challenge. But I appreciate the balance between sort of academic research and narrative and some of your specialties. And you even included a section which I thought was missing from a lot of other behavioural books that I've read on how to actually conduct experiments properly. So all that to say, my first question for you is why go to all the trouble of even writing a book Great question. So let me start off by saying that it wasn't trouble. I mean, it, it wasn't
1: trouble because I've been thinking about the issues that the book covered for years. So I think it took me four, five years just kind of letting the material percolate and thinking about the framework. And I sat down to write it. It took me all of three, three and a half months to get it down to the shape that you saw it in. So it wasn't trouble. But why a book is is an important question. And so a lot of the work I do really tries to bring academia to practitioners. I'm interested in changing the world. I'm interested in making an impact outside the four walls of the business school. And the sad truth is that practitioners do not read academic journals, and so they shouldn't, because we write those things to appeal to other academics. They are dense, they are complicated, they're full of stats. And so a book is a perfect bridge. It lets you take complex ideas, it lets you translate them, distill them to the basic prescriptive kind of advice you want to give.
0: And, and that's why the book. And thank you for your kind comments on the book. No, fantastic! I'm glad to hear that it wasn't trouble because I hear a lot of things about how difficult it is to go through the writing process. So I'm glad that it was easy for you.
2: (laughs) So really, just as Joe mentioned in you know how he first got introduced to you, and that was the same way I first met you. I was at the weekend as well. You know, a lot of our listeners who are students at Rotman and even beyond that know that you wear a lot of hats. Like you said, you have all these complicated ideas. You're a professor a researcher in the behavioral science department, and you even help advice on public policy. So these are some of the things that we know you by, but how would you describe yourself, really?
1: I guess I'm a student of human beings, right? I, I like trying to study why people do what they do. Well, firstly, I like to document what they do. Why do they do it? And then how can I use that insight to help them make choices. So, for example, we've known in business or in the world of policy that if you get people to, to spend using mobile payments, their pattern of spending is different than if they use cash or checks or credit cards. And so the question is why? And, and you can start building some really interesting models using psychology, using economics, but the real interesting thing comes after the fact. So now that I know what people do and why they do it, can I somehow intervene to help them make the right choice. So that's, I guess, the right way to think about what I do. Sometimes I get confused as well. People ask me at cocktail parties, what do you do? And I guess that's a good response. I study human behavior.
0: Fascinating. And certainly an endless vast of knowledge that you can just study forever, really, because human beings seem to be infinitely complex. Aren't they? I'm yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a lot to document. Yeah. So what was the inciting incident that really spurred that initial foray into the behavior of science when you first began to start studying humans? I'll give you one
1: story. So, like I said, I'm an engineer by training. And so my first degree is in engineering. I started off on the shop floor. And at some point in time, I saw a job for a sales posting. I used to work for a company that sold earth-moving machines. So these are like these big, hulking hydraulic devices. And for some reason, that's still a mystery to me today, they gave me the sales job. And that was eye-opening for me because I remember being on the shop floor and in the design studio where the engineers would be spending countless hours trying to improve the torque of the engine by 0.1%, you know, improving improving the performance more generally. And nobody cared. And so I'd go to the field and I'd, I'd start talking about how lovely this engine was and what are the benefits of a V engine versus something else. And they would just stare blankly at me and they'd ask me questions about pricing plans and what color the machine is going to be and if I can customize a service plan for them. And it just got me thinking about the fact that a lot of the first-mile processes that we spend countless hours on in organizations are things that nobody cares about. So so that really got me interested in understanding psychology. So I spent some time in advertising. That was a fascinating experience for me. The fact that you could change a line in an ad and people behave differently was, was something amazing. And then I ended up getting a Ph.D., but even today, a lot of my research is driven by just observations of the world around me. Observations about what people do. So, so one simple story is I, I remember being at a, at a friend's place for dinner. His wife had just come back from France, and she was telling us about, you know, all of the shopping she'd done. And then she had bought a pair of shoes, which somehow didn't fit her. So, yeah, you know, it was a long, complex story about she tried them on, and then obviously the pair she got was a different size. And she said something very interesting. She said, well, I'm just going to keep them in the closet for six months and then give them away. And I said, why would you leave them in the closet for six months, right? And, and she said, well, then I don't feel as bad about wasting the money, right? And so a lot of the work I've done in payment methods or mental accounting has to do with this whole notion of time. How do people adapt to the pain of payment with time, But but these are little triggers that, that oftentimes, I mean, a conversation like this might probably end up being a research project at some point in time. But, but it's really keeping your eyes open about what's happening in the world around you.
0: Amazing. And I imagine that is sort of on the lines of what has kept you interested in the field is that there's always seems to be something new that you can For sure. expand on. So kind of in that regard, actually, with your research and experience, and you've done a lot of observation of people, and I'm sure observation of yourself mm-hmm. as well. I noticed that recently in an interview I heard with Richard Taylor who you know and speak to on Twitter quite regularly, is said that even with all his years of research and the accumulated knowledge and his awareness of the cognitive biases that humans are prone to, and uh, despite knowing and being aware of all of that and researching it for very many years, he still feels powerless to prevent himself from succumbing to these cognitive and behavioral biases. Or, at the very least, he fares no better than right. the average person, despite being an expert in the field. So my question to you is, given all your research, how do you think that you fare? with this regard. Have you ever been able to use it to your advantage?
1: No, no better. I mean, so (laughs) I I agree with Richard. So Richard was one of my advisors when I got my degree. So, you know, who am I to to claim that I can do something that he can't? But I do agree that it hasn't made me a better decision maker, but it's made me aware of my weaknesses. So for example, I, I buffer myself a lot. I don't let my impulse dictate a course of action. So I could make an impulsive judgment about people. But I don't act on it immediately. I'll, I'll sleep over it or I'll be open to feedback. I think it's it's made me a lot more humble about my own abilities. As an MBA and a PhD, it's reasonable that many people, you know, get cocky. You've studied this stuff. You know this stuff really well. If anything, I've just become more humble. I mean, I've realized how much of an idiot I am. And I just plan to be an idiot. Uh, and I think that's the important thing to do. And so in class, for example, we talk about inter choice. And we know you're going to do silly things in the future, but can you just buffer yourself from doing that, right? So being open to feedback, being open to descriptions of you that you think are blatantly untrue, that's helpful. You could call me You know things in the past, and I feel I feel offended. Today, I'll stop back and say, is there something I did that could potentially have caused that perception? So I think it's just the humility, but it hasn't made me a better decision maker. Certainly not.
0: Very interesting.
2: So you know, given that you've been in this field for so many years, and you've interacted with I don't know how many people, you teach a class every year on behavioral Mm -hmm. economics. I remember I was in one of your classes and you even mentioned this example about the job interview process. You mentioned that sometimes it's good to be the quiet one in the room and be thought of as an idiot, for the lack of a better word. That being said, with such interesting examples that you have to share with us, what would you say are some of your favorite behavioral biases or findings?
1: Gosh, okay. so I'll start off by saying something that I probably said in class which is I don't like the word bias, Uh, and I'll tell you why, because bias suggests that people are doing something wrong. In the 1980s, there used to be a band called Depeche Mode. They had a single called People Are People, and so people are people. They're not irrational. They're not biased. I just think the science that we use to describe their behavior is wrong. So I I think using economic decision-making as the basis for calling someone biased is in itself a bias. To me, that's the biggest bias. The fact that we expect people to be rational, Mm -hmm. I think that's that's bias. But more broadly, I think, I just find that whole notion of people are different entities with the passage of time interesting. And the fact that you can't empathize with your own future self is just absolutely fascinating. So that whole area, I think, is very captivating. The notion of self-control, how do I lock my future self into doing something that I think it should be doing? I think these are all really important, interesting questions. And we don't know a whole lot about these things yet. Mm -hmm. So if you guys want to do research in the future, there's stuff for you to do.
2: So, you know, building on that, people being different versions of themselves with the passage of time, do you think that also sort of differs in the whole lifespan of a human being? Like, you know, from, you know, when we're young adults to being in our mid lives?
1: It does. I mean, I think the whole approach to Mm decision-making changes. It should change. Obviously, experience helps, but I think there are critical moments in life where we tend to be more or less forward-looking. So think about life events like, you know, the first home you purchased or the birth of your first child. I mean, these are definitely moments where people pause and take stock of their life and think about the future. And so, I think oftentimes we need to understand that timing is everything. Joe and I had this conversation earlier about the fact that we've learned a lot about how to influence people or, or to help them make better choices. We haven't learned as much about when to do it. So when should I tell people that they should buy insurance? We're not in the middle of a busy day, but maybe when their first child is born, when they're thinking about these things. So absolutely, I think it does matter.
0: And do you have an idea for a rebrand of the word bias or anything that we could use instead of that as we think about these patterns of human behavior?
1: Sadly, no. Having spent many years in in marketing, I feel I should have had a brand (laughs) name for it. But no, I I, I don't think so. I think of behavioral science more as a descriptive science than sort of a, a study of biases. And it's unfortunate. I mean, today you'll go onto Wikipedia and you search behavioral economics and something might pop up which says the top 140 biases in human behavior. I think that's just the wrong way of thinking about behavioral science. But no, I wish I had a nice a nice alternate brand name and I don't.
0: We'll leave that for some of the listeners to come up with that. Maybe. You are the research chair and you also head up the behavioral economics in action at Rotman and you have a lot of interns and people that come and spend the summer researching with you and also working in behavioral economics consulting. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the key skills required to succeed in the field of behavioral economics, and how can aspiring behavioral scientists get involved?
1: So I'd say there's one that dominates everything else, which is sort of just that innate curiosity to try and understand why people do what they do, and I think that's above all. So I ask people, you know, what's your favorite thing to do when you have spare time? And some people will tell me, well, oh, like, I, you know, I, I practice, uh, I practice my math, or I read about what's happening in the world. And then there's others who will say, you know, people watching. And those are the ones I think will make good behavioral scientists, right? So if you've ever been to a coffee shop and you've just sat for 45 minutes observing what's happening around you and you think about those things, I think that's sort of critical. You know, people who are good observers of human behavior, I think, get a start. You need to be genuinely curious. You need to be passionate. You need to have sort of the whole empirical mindset. You know, what would happen if kind of question, right? Rather than studying what is happening push yourself to think about what would happen if something changed and then really kind of a focus on studying humans as a function of their context and not themselves. Oftentimes people will say I really need to get people to think differently and I don't don't think that's the issue. It's really hard to change human attitudes and behavior. It's much easier to change the context. If you make it easy for people to do stuff they'll do it and I think that's the mindset that people need to bring to the science.
2: It's interesting that you asked us that question. You like asking people what they want to do in their spare time. Yep. We want to know those kind of things about you as well. And okay. so we're going to jump into a quick rapid fire round here. I'm going to get us started. Joe will follow and so on. OK. Are you ready?
1: I am ready.
2: So if not a professor, you would be?
1: Gosh, maybe still an engineer, perhaps a bad cricket player, <laughs> uh, or maybe
0: in advertising. What's a book you've most given as a gift other
1: than your own? Misbehaving uh, by Richard Taylor. It's a wonderful treatise on on behavioral science. It talks about the history of the science. It talks about the phenomena without calling anyone biased.
2: What's a bad piece of advice that you often hear?
1: Oh, gosh. Can I give two? One is to plan your life and career. I think that's just terrible advice. In a rapidly changing world in particular, the more plans you have in place, the more blinkers you put on yourself. The other one is to think big which I have no complaints against except for the fact that people often take big thinking to mean less small thinking. And the one thing I've learned is that most big ideas succeed because people get
0: the small things
1: right. So don't forget the small thinking. I think that's great advice.
0: What is your favorite place or where is your favorite place to grab dinner in Toronto? All right. So dinner
1: in Toronto would be Auberge du Pommier, which is this charming French restaurant just south of the 401 grab isn't the right word because you want to go there with plenty of time uh, if i'm grabbing food i don't know i'd go to mississauga to one of the dosa joints um. uh, and, and get a dosa there very good
2: other than people watching what is your favorite way to kill 30 minutes
1: probably watching videos of cricket games from the 1970s and 1980s i'd gladly watch <laughs> for example sunil gavaskar back for 30 minutes just blocking the ball fantastic do you have a secret talent? I don't think so. If I knew it, I would have probably used it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What would you say is the best investment you've ever made? And this could not necessarily money. Yeah, uh,
1: reading and, and, and reading broadly. So, for example, literature. I mean, I read a lot of stuff and I think it helps me in my work. I was actually doing some research on time perception and Milan Kundera came to me at some point in time because in immortality... Obviously, I've read only the translation because I can't read the original. But there's a sentence which says that the human brain only takes photographs. It doesn't record video. And that's a great line because it it helps me think about developing a model for how people remember things. It's just pictures. There's no timestamp on it, right? So, yeah, just reading as broadly as you can.
0: Wonderful. When you feel overwhelmed, what do you do to get back on track?
1: A couple of things. Uh, If it's a nice summer day, I'll probably just go outside for a walk or hit a few tennis balls as hard as I can, but really just chip away at the problem. I mean, just like one step at a time. Small wins matter.
2: What have you changed your mind about in the last year?
1: A couple of things. One of them probably more controversial than the other one. The one thing is the importance of focus. I mean, people always told me and I accepted that focus is important. I realize it's not. I mean, there's so many things you can get by being unfocused. You can be creative, you can expand your horizons. So that's one thing I've changed my mind about. And then the importance of, this is the controversial one, formal education. I'm becoming less and less convinced that formal education through degrees is the right or is as valuable as it used to be. In, in an age where an employer couldn't actually test your skills, I guess formal degrees were a good signal for what you could do. But today, I don't know if that's true anymore. So mm. that's the other thing that I've begun to move
0: slightly on. I feel mm. like we could have a full conversation on just we that on eat. Yeah. <laughs> what are you most excited about for the coming decade? I think the democratization of knowledge,
1: but in general, I think the democratization of everything. So I think, you know, back to education, you don't have to be a university to be able to teach things. You can do that now in different ways. You don't have to be, you know, a graduate in the arts to paint or to compose or to write poems. And I think the internet has made all of those things possible. But there's just generally been a much more wider acceptance of these things. We don't take signals anymore. Status is becoming less of a thing. So I think that's exciting. And I think that's empowering.
2: Mm Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today, Dilip. Would you have any closing comments for our listeners today?
1: Other than sort of my usual thing, think small, and you know, bear as you mentioned is around. It's I think one of the most fantastic things about the university here is centers like this. So feel free to come and engage with us, and all the very best. And how can people reach out to you or find you if they wanted to connect with you? The easiest thing to do is to find me on Twitter and tweet me. I am really quick at responding to tweets. I am terrible with email. Okay, and you're at Dilip Sermon on Twitter. I am
0: at Dilip Sermon. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dilip. This has been enlightening. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rotman Podcasts Faculty Insights Edition. Make sure to check back for a new episode every other Sunday on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And follow us on EMA underscore Rotman on Instagram for updates on upcoming episodes and guests and behind-the-scenes shots. Also, we would love to hear from you. So if you'd like to give us feedback, please email us at ema at rotman.utoronto.ca. Thank you for listening.